Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handled them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Today, I'm joined by linguist, historian, and renowned professor Noam Chomsky. Chomsky is considered the founder of modern linguistics and one of the most cited scholars in contemporary society. He's authored dozens of books on subjects including syntactic structure, the mass media propaganda machine, the power of activism, American foreign policy, and the perils of neoliberalism. Chomsky is currently the laureate professor of linguistics at the University of Arizona. He's also, as of this week, 93 years old. You wouldn't know it from this conversation, which covers so much ground so quickly, I did all I could just to keep up. In doing so, we discuss President Biden's response to the Omicron variant, our distorted definition of personal freedom, what the new infrastructure bill actually means for communities of color, the Kyle Rittenhouse verdict, the state of the GOP, how critical race theory is being used as a cover term for Christian nationalists, and what we can actually learn from 1930s America. For those keeping score, this is Chomsky's third appearance on Talk Easy. As always, I'm grateful for his time, his insight, 
and above all, his unending curiosity, even at age 93. I hope you enjoy. Noam Chomsky, thank you for being here. Glad to be with you. This week, in response to the Omicron variant, President Biden released a new pandemic strategy that includes hundreds of vaccination sites, boosters for all adults, new testing requirements for international travelers, and free at-home tests. Most controversially, he implemented a new travel restriction on eight African nations. I wanted to start here with you because in April of this year, you went on the Ezra Klein show and you said, all of the problems we face are international. The pandemic is international. We are, in fact, committing suicide right now in the rich countries with eyes open by monopolizing vaccines. If we don't spread vaccines to Africa, poor countries in Asia, it's going to come back and hit us like a sledgehammer. Are we in the process of being hit by that sledgehammer? Yes. It's not only uh, monopolizing the vaccines, but protecting the rights of the pharmaceutical corporations uh, not to allow others like South Africa to produce their own vaccines. Uh, we have to remember that the current international neoliberal globalization regime provides extraordinary protection to corporations, unprecedentedly long patents of on not only the product, but also the process. So Moderna, for example, where the basic research was paid for by the taxpayer and the distributions were paid by taxpayer money, South Africa has a pharmaceutical industry, could have been producing vaccines. In that case, we wouldn't have had, no, very likely would not have had an Omicron a mutation. But by withholding actually the actual vaccines and also the processes for producing them, we're virtually guaranteeing that there will be uh, variants, mutations developed, which of course will come back right to us. The United States for once hasn't been the worst on this issue. It's Germany, which has been the most extreme in insisting that the process rights of the pharmaceutical corporations be guaranteed. And maybe ironically, uh, Germany is now one of the hotspots. You said we haven't had one of the worst responses, but are you surprised by how we've handled the variant thus far? Unfortunately not. Let's take a much more serious case, the survival of the human species. A week ago in Glasgow, countries of the world got together to deal with the existential problem of environmental destruction. We either deal with that very soon or else everything else is moot, doesn't matter. Well, there were actually two events in process in Glasgow. There was one inside the halls where the gentlemen, few ladies were orating to one another, discussing ways to avoid doing anything, agreeing to meet next year 
maybe we'll do something then, but essentially doing very little. There was another event in the streets, tens of thousands of people, mostly young people, were demonstrating, calling for employing the means that are available, are feasible to overcome the crisis and to move on to a much better world. Well, that's the Omicron crisis is a small copy of that serious, but much less significant. It's a matter of millions of deaths, maybe tens of millions of deaths, not a central destruction of the species. On the subject of the climate crisis, I want to go back to the wording you just used. All of the problems we face are international, but they're also interconnected. And I, and I think when we talk about this looming crisis, if the pandemic is any indication, there are still many who refuse to wear masks, get vaccinated in the name of personal freedom. What makes us think will respond to the climate crisis in any in any different way? Well, this is a very strange concept of personal freedom. So for example, suppose uh, I don't happen to like to stop at red lights. I'd rather go through them if there's no imminent danger. And my personal freedom is infringed by that red light. Or maybe I would like to take my assault rifle and walk around a shopping mall uh, shooting it randomly. Uh, chances are I'll never hit anybody, but uh, it's an infringement on my personal freedom if a police officer stops me. It's a curious notion of freedom, which incidentally nobody has ever brought up. It's brought up in this case as part of the manufactured hysteria about the COVID vaccine. I mean, for decades in the United States, there have been mandates in schools on children having vaccines. You want to send your kid to school without a measles and polio vaccine, you can't because children have a right to a safe space. Uh, it's just the COVID vaccine, which has been turned into some sort of special demon, uh, mostly by the far right, though there are some left uh, elements who join as well. But it's just a special thing that was developed in connection with the COVID vaccine. So we can ask what this specific sociological phenomenon is, but it has nothing to do with personal freedom. There is no personal freedom to say, I want to harm people, I'm free to do it. What do you make of that specific sociological phenomenon? I think it's connected with the breakdown of society in a much broader way. We have been subjected to 40 plus years of a neoliberal assault on the general population. And one of the things it's done is exactly what those who proclaimed at first, Margaret Thatcher, there is no society, only individuals cast out on the market to somehow survive. Of course she was lying and she knew it. There's plenty of society, rich, complex society for the rich and powerful to defend themselves. 
But the rest of us, aside from the privileged sector that they serve, we have no society. So break down everything. Reagan was the same, or whoever wrote his speeches was the same. He was probably watching cowboy movies. But his inaugural address, as you recall, had the famous lines about how government is the problem, not the solution. We have to get rid of government, which is the one organized form for the general society. The government is mainly responsive to the rich and powerful, but it is somewhat responsive, somewhat accountable to the general population. And it's the only national organization which has that property. So we have to get rid of it. Uh, do you get rid of decisions when you get rid of government? Uh, the decisions continue to be made. They just are made in the private sector, which dominates government, makes sure that governments work in their interests, but basically is unaccountable to the public. That was made explicit in this case by the economic guru of the neoliberal attack, Milton Friedman, who wrote an article in which he explained that uh, corporations have no responsibility to the public. Their sole responsibility is to self-enrichment. That's it. Well, you put all this together, add something else, Reagan and Thatcher, or their advisors, made, understood exactly what they were doing. They made certain that when you're launching this major attack against the population, in which there will be no society, just atomized individuals, you have to make sure that they have no way to defend themselves. So their first act, both Thatcher and Reagan, was to attack unions using what in fact were illegal measures like permanent replacement workers outlawed throughout the world, opening the door for corporations to say, come along, you can do the same thing. We all have to destroy the ways for working people to defend themselves. Uh, Clinton picked up and pursued the same thing. End result of this is a huge assault on the population. There are actually some measures of it which are worth keeping in mind. I may have mentioned them before, but again, the uh, highway robbery that's taken place during these 40 years, they use a more polite term. They call it transfer of wealth. So what is the transfer of wealth from the working class and the middle class, lower 90% in income? transfer of wealth from them to the very top. Their estimate is almost $50 trillion in 40 years. Take what's happening in Congress. The Republican Party, which is the party of the super rich and the corporate sector, have established a couple of red lines. One red line is you cannot touch the Trump tax cut they love to talk about deficits when Democrats are creating deficits to help poor people. But their one legislative achievement was the Trump tax cut, a tax cut for the very rich and the corporate sector. 
stabbing everyone else in the back. Second, you cannot fund the international, the internal revenue service because the IRS goes after tax cheats. And by far, the major tax cheating, tens of billions, probably trillions of dollars, is the very rich and the corporate sector. You couldn't have a clearer indication of what a gang of hypocrites and cowards and slaves of the wealth this party has become. This idea that the Republicans are clearly in the pocket of the wealth. I want to stick with that because just this week, the new infrastructure law signed by President Biden includes almost $50 billion to protect communities against climate change. Now, the primary issue here, as you've probably read, is that historically, wealthier white communities with both higher property values and the resources to apply for competitive programs receive the bulk of federal grants. So in this case, to receive a grant, there are two major hurdles for low-income communities. If they are awarded a grant, communities are required to pay a share of the project, often 25%, which is unaffordable for most struggling towns and counties. The local governments then have to clear those obstacles and then have to demonstrate that the value of the property that would be protected is greater than the cost of the project. And so we're in agreement that the Republican Party is in the pocket of the 1%. And yet this bill passed by President Biden is once again in favor of that white 1% community that is more likely to get these environmental grants than communities of color. How do we reckon with that? I suspect that the more liberal Democrats uh, would have preferred a different formulation. But in order to get anything at all past the Republican opposition, you have to put conditions in that benefit the rich white community. Otherwise, it can't pass. Uh, you'll never get a Republican vote for it. Uh, this is an old story. It used to be the Democrats. Back in the days, you go back to the 1930s, 40s, uh, when the Democratic Party was a coalition of Northern liberals and Southern Democrats, outspoken, bitter racists. If the New Deal wanted to get any measures passed that would help people, they had to put in racist conditions. Otherwise, the Southern Democrats would kill it. Southern Democrats, the racist segment, they were Democrats until Nixon. Nixon realized that if the Republican Party is going to be viable, uh, they have to find a voting base. You can't get voters by saying, we work to serve the super rich in the corporate sector. You don't get votes that way. So the Republicans had to turn to what are now called cultural issues. Well, one of them is race. So Nixon's Southern strategy was quite openly designed to induce the Southern Democrats to shift to become Republicans. And the way to do it was but to insinuate that Republicans would become the racist party. 
so you can join us. What you just described is just another manifestation of it. On the subject of race, as the Kyle Rittenhouse case played out, we were all following the news day after day. What did you make of those proceedings? Technically, in a very narrow sense, the jury verdict could be justified. The laws of self-defense are so expansive that if you just say, I feel threatened, that's self-defense. And of course, the gun laws in the United States are so crazy by international standards, you can argue that this is legal within the framework of American law. The more interesting questions are different. What kind of a society is it in which a young, probably disturbed kid can pick up a rifle, can go across state lines and decide that he's going to protect property, meaning protect white property from alleged black marauders? What kind of a society is it in which that can happen? That's not about Rittenhouse, it's about the society. The second interesting thing is what the Republicans are doing, from Fox television like Tucker Carlson to Donald Trump to Marjorie Greene, uh, turning to make this disturbed kid a hero who's almost certain to appear at the Republican National Con uh, Convention next time. In fact, three House congressmen just this past week have said that they would hire Kyle Rittenhouse as an intern in their office. Oh, I think he's going to go much higher than that. Maybe he'll be appointed attorney general in uh, Trump's next uh, next incarnation. I don't blame him. He's a young kid. He probably doesn't even know what he's doing. But he's playing along with it. And they're exploiting him. You know, this. you listen to Tucker Carlson, this lovely, sweet, and white boy, you know, trying to defend the white race. I mean, it's just wonderful. They'll turn him into something huge. It's not the first time. Now, take, say, Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan was not particularly popular during his term in office. You look at the uh, approval ratings during Reagan's term, they were moderate. In fact, at the time he left office, his approval ratings were not high at all. But after he left office, a huge propaganda campaign was organized, Reagan legacy campaign, to turn him into a divine creature, which had nothing to do with his hideous record, but it was very successful. Uh, now he's regarded as a semi-divinity. Uh, they can do the same for Tucker Carlson's uh, sweet, lovely white boy, you know, who's been so badly treated. In my view, he is neither sweet nor lovely, but you did mention the next incarnation of Trump. What do you think that next incarnation looks like? There's a good possibility that Trump will be reelected in 2024, even if he loses the electoral vote by many millions. I mean, after all, in 2016, he lost the electoral vote by 3 million, 2020 by 7 million. He came very close to winning. 
if in 2024 it'll be a lot easier, Republicans are hard at work at the state level to ensure that honest elections can't take place. They're working hard to intimidate election advisors so anybody who's not in their pocket is afraid to even be there. They want to destroy American democracy in order to ensure their power, and they'll use whatever means they can. In fact, McConnell says it straight out. We have to make the country ungovernable. We have to harm the country as much as possible so that it'll be blamed on the party in power, on Democrats, and then we can come roaring back. Let's organize anti-mandate campaigns so as many people as possible will die from the Omicron variant, and then they'll blame it on the Democrats, and we can come back into office. I mean, what what is the word for that? I don't have the word. But if you can't sink below that, how do you meet it, or, or how do you combat it? The only way you can combat it is the only way that's ever existed. Popular organization, activism on the ground, educational efforts, organizing, finding the right kinds of activities that'll reach people instead of alienating them. You have to reach out to the Republican worshipers of Trump. There are people too. They can be reached, especially younger ones. Uh, just has to be done to cut away at this worship of a extreme criminal, maybe the worst criminal in human history, literally, who is dedicated to destroying the human species as quickly as possible in the interests of the fossil fuel industry and the big banks that stuff his pockets in the pockets of his friends. There's been nobody like that before. And I think the people can be reached. If they can't, we're essentially finished. Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History, my podcast about the overlooked and the misunderstood. A couple of years ago, I wrote a book called Outliers. It was about exceptional people, the ones who operate at the outer edges of human performance. Outliers fascinate me. And last year, I discovered an outlier in the form of a community organization, Washington State's City of Bellevue. The city wanted to improve public safety by making their roads safer. So they created something that no one had ever built before, a platform that gave road users warnings of any dangers ahead in real time. How did they build it? By using a combination of technologies, the cellular vehicle-to-everything network, T-Mobile's 5G network, and 5G-connected cameras. People driving, bicycling, walking, running, can't forget people running, and people operating the transportation network now had a way to prevent crashes. It's been a huge success. The city of Bellevue earned first place in the community category at the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards, an event that celebrates T-Mobile customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of meaningful change. If you're a T-Mobile for Business customer and your team has, like the city of Bellevue, innovated something really, really cool, I encourage you to enter. It's also a great way for outliers to be recognized in front of your industry's most influential leaders. 
You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase, NA member FDIC, 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event, so give your friends something to look at, like a B&B with an ocean view, an endless field of wildflowers, or a sunset that needs no filter. Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. See your local Kia dealer or visit Kia.com to learn more. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-334-KIA for details. Always drive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824. Before the break, you were talking about this Trump worshipping. But this kind of worship is not new. I want to go back to 1741, where David Hume published Of the First Principles of Government. In it, he writes... Nothing appears more surprising than the easiness with which the many are governed by the few, and the implicit submission with which men resign their own sentiments and passions to those of their rulers. Yes, it's the first paragraph, the opening paragraph of what is really, in many ways, the first modern political science text, his first principles of government. It's amazing it amazed him, should amaze us, that the governed, who have, he goes on to say, the governed have the power if they decide to use it, but they are kept under control, as he says, by consent. It's consent that is the measure, the means by which this magic is achieved, that the small group of rulers can continue to control the mass of the population, harming it, but they consent. Well, you have to break that consent. One of the ways to break that consent is by organized activity. That's why the neoliberal rulers have tried so hard to destroy unions. Unions are the major way in which people break free of the enforced consent. And the answer is rebuild them. Rebuild the means of self-defense and use them to overcome the highway robbery and destruction that's going on in front of our eyes. What are some concrete examples 
of us breaking from that enforced consent. You go back 50 years and look at the United States in the 1960s. It's a different country. Federal housing was segregated by law. Blacks could not apply for federal housing. Uh, There were anti-sodomy laws. There were anti-miscegenation laws that were so extreme that the Nazis refused to accept them. Women were, by law, still regarded as property, not as people. It wasn't until 1975, under the pressure of the rising feminist movement, that the Supreme Court determined that women have the rights of what's called peers. Prior to that official American law, women were property, not people. Property of their father handed over to their husband. It's a much more civilized country than it used to be. That's why there are such efforts on the part of the right wing to focus on what they call cultural issues to try to beat back this rising civilized character. Uh, Take uh, CRT, critical race theory. It's perfectly frank and open among those who wield the weapon that they haven't a clue what it is and don't care. Actually, Christopher Rufo, the main proponent, just said straight out, look, this is a cover term for everything we don't like. And what he means is uh, any attack on white supremacy, on Christian nationalism, and then you try to mobilize parents by inflaming them with fabricated tales about how the commie Democrats who are trying to teach your sweet little white boy that because of his white skin, uh, he's a Nazi oppressor. That's what they're trying to do to your little children, these monsters. So parents get enraged and attack school board meetings and so on and so forth. We should recall that in the 1930s, there was a serious, very serious problems. The depression was very deep, much worse than anything today. People really suffered. And basically, there were two ways out. One way out was picked by continental Europe, fascism. The other way out was picked by the United States, social democracy, the New Deal, which gave enormous benefits to much of the population. Well, you take a look today, situation's almost reversed. The United States is moving into a kind of proto-fascism under the Republican Party leadership. Europe is holding on more or less to the remnants of social democracy, those that survived the neoliberal assault. That's basically the world today. You were born in 1928. You came of age in the 1930s. By the time this episode airs, you will have turned 93. Is that correct? Yeah, just a couple days. (laughs) How are you thinking about time these days? I always act as if it's stretching out infinitely before me. No point thinking about anything else. As much time as there is, I'll use it. 
and you always have, but you've also been grappling with how best to use your time, dating back to the late 1960s. In October of 1968, around the Vietnam War, you sat down for an interview at MIT, where you were also teaching. You said, people come to me and say, why don't you do 10 times as much against the war? Obviously, trying to stop the war is in different order of importance than my work in linguistics. It's vastly more important. So I criticize myself, but I don't know of any ideal solution other than by feeling guilty most of the time. Do you still feel that guilt day to day? I feel there's more that could be done that I could do, but I think I do what can be done within reason. There are things I can't do anymore. Like I used to go to demonstrations, participate in civil disobedience, get arrested, spend a couple of days in jail. It's just not physically possible for me anymore. There are a lot of other things I can't do, but do what I can. There's more that could be done. All of us know that. But you have to survive. I should say I spend a fair amount of time on professional work, too. It's uh, intellectually exciting for anyone. Things like that keep you alive. Maybe it's writing poetry or listening to music or playing in a band or taking hikes or whatever it is. You do the things that enable you to survive, even though you could, you know that you could be working on the kinds of problems we're talking about. You can't criticize that. I know of no one who doesn't do that. Now I'm just trying to imagine what kind of band you would be part of. Well, I, I once played music. There was a an MIT Harvard uh, band, uh, and uh, there was one professional in the group, a student at the New England Conservatory, real musician, who she kind of organized it. And once they needed an extra guitar player, and they didn't have a guitar player, so she tried to convince me, she did convince me to play the guitar. But what I had to do, my task was to pluck on one string, which I could do, but to move my fingers as if I was playing the guitar so it would look like it. And she showed me how to do that, and I took part in a concert, plucked on my string, and went like this. <laughs> That's my musical career. <laughs> <laughs> it was short-lived, but I'm glad we have it on record here. Before we go, you mentioned how you can't go out to social demonstrations anymore. You know, you can't protest and, and potentially get locked up for a couple nights. But I've been thinking about activism as we head into 2022. Throughout the Vietnam War, you had students protesting. You had them protesting the war and then civil rights, and, and, and you've seen the waves of youth activism. Do you think we are more effective activists now than in the late 60s? In many ways, yes. Uh, for one thing, uh, activism in the 1960s, many people who weren't there have an image of it, which is quite misleading. There was a lot of 
real activism in the late 60s. Take the Vietnam War. I was living in Boston at the time. Boston's probably the most liberal city in the country. Uh, we could not have a public demonstration against the war until late 1966 because it would be assaulted and broken up violently, uh, often by students, pro-war students. That's the most liberal city in the country. As late as March 1966, we tried to have an anti-war demonstration in a church, thinking maybe that would be safe. Church was attacked. Uh, okay, It wasn't uh, easy in those days. By the late 60s, things had changed. Then you could get a million people coming to Washington. It sort of dropped off quickly in the 70s. Few things, but not much. Uh, that was a brief, very important period. Very well may have prevented Nixon from using nuclear weapons in Vietnam. Fair evidence for that. It was one of a number of things in the early 60s, mid-60s. There were major demonstrations in the South. I, Howard's Inn, my friend Howard's Inn and I, went down to one in Jackson, Mississippi. Very brutal. State police attacking people, brutalizing them. It wasn't simple. It wasn't easy. But they did take place. And all of these things had an impact. They were part of a developed a mass movement that did lead to significant change. So th these are things you have to protect by constant engagement. Your opponents don't rest. They're relentless. They don't stop. They have plenty of power, plenty of wealth, and they're going to fight for the kind of country that they want. Uh, so if you want a, what we would call a civilized, decent country, you're going to have to work for it. In fact, if you want to survive at all, you're going to have to work for it. Those tens of thousands of young people in the streets of Glasgow were doing what has to be done if the human species is going to survive for very long. Basically, what you're saying is the only way to beat back against fatigue is embracing the bicycle theory. Yes, that's the only way. <laughs> Can you explain to people what that is? Well, if you're riding a bicycle, if you keep going fast enough, you don't fall off. If you slow down, you fall. And it's a good lesson. <laughs> well, Professor Chomsky, I thank you for continuing to ride that bicycle, <laughs> both uh, on this show for a third time and uh, in your life. And happy birthday to you. Thank you. Pleased to be with you. That's our show. Special thanks to Valeria Chomsky and, of course, Professor Noam Chomsky. If you'd like to listen to our first two conversations from 2020, 
You can find those on our website at www.talkeasypod.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, I'd recommend our talks with Naomi Klein, Dr. Cornell West, Rucker Bregman, Representative Ilhan Omar, Richard Powers, Jenea Future Khan, Nathaniel Rich, and Gloria Steinem. To hear those and find more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at TalkEasyPod. If you're looking for a holiday gift and want to purchase one of our mugs that come in cream or navy, or even our record with Fran Leibowitz, you can do so at TalkEasyPod.com shop. In case you missed it, we'll be donating 100% of the proceeds to Covenant House, which focuses on supporting homeless youth. If you'd like to learn more about their work, we've included links on our website at TalkEasyPod.com shop. Of course, this show wouldn't be possible without our team. Talk Easy is produced by Caroline Reebok. Our executive producer is Janixa Bravo. Our associate producer and the editor of today's talk is Caitlin Dryden. Our assistant editor is Clarice Guevara. Today's episode was mixed by Ben Tolliday. Illustrations by Krisha Shenoy. Video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Gabrzak, Ian Jones, and Ethan Seneca. Special thanks to Patrice Lee, Kayla Ung, Shiloh Fagan, Nikki Spina, and Callie Syringus. I'd also like to thank the team at Pushkin Industries, Justin Richmond, Heather Fain, Mia LaBelle, Maggie Taylor, Nicole Morano, Maya Koenig, Carly Migliori, Jason Gambrell, Jacob Weisberg, and Malcolm Gladwell. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you back here next week for our annual holiday special. Until then, stay safe and so long. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts.